Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan and thank you for joining us today. Today I'm excited to introduce a new series that we're going to be doing, which is going to be talking about science in the Bible. Now, the Bible is not a science book, but it is a book that contains a lot of science that was light years ahead of its time. And even today, we're still discovering things that were written in the Bible from the very beginning. And so what I wanted to do today was to try to go through as much of the book of Genesis as possible that contains scientific truth in it. Because while I could jump around book to book, I like to go from cover to cover and see what we can find when it comes to scientific truth in the Bible. The reason why I wanted to cover this particular topic was because, first of all, it was fascinating for me to study this, but secondly is, in the name of apologetics, in defending the faith, there will be times where people will challenge the validity of the Bible and will say that science and religion don't mix. And the Bible disproves that when the opposite is true. Science can work with religion, especially since the author of science itself is God. Therefore, he is the most reliable source of information when it comes to science. Now, the biggest differences between what scientists will tell you and what God will tell you is that God will tell you the truth, and it is a fact. Whereas you have scientists who theorize and don't know for complete certainty that something is something. So I consider that another advantage that we have over the natural man. So I'm going to do my best to go through this from cover to cover without jumping around too much. So naturally, we need to start at the beginning. Turn your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at the very first verse, verse 1. Now, science will tell you that there is something called the law of biogenesis. And what this means is that scientists have only observed that life comes from existing life. That life does not just originate out of nothing. This law has never been violated under observation or experimentation as evolution imagines. We have never observed life spontaneously coming into being. Life comes only through life. Therefore, God's life, which is the only life that exists, created all life. The second thing to consider is that the universe has a beginning. When you look at the studies of people like Albert Einstein in the early 1900s, and it even continues today. As science has confirmed the biblical view that the universe had a beginning. That was not always the case. Some used to think that the universe was eternal. And especially when the Bible was written, most people believed that the universe had always existed. But science not only proved them wrong, but it proved that the Bible was correct, in that it says in verse 1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, which means there was a beginning. When you look at verse 2, it says that the world 
was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, as if to suggest that earth was in a nebular form initially. This was discovered in 1911, that the world was in a nebular form, and what nebular form actually was. So that's fascinating to consider as well. Now look with me at verse 9. It says, Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So it seems to suggest that all the land was in one place, right? And so, as if to say that it was one supercontinent. So the Pangea theory that all the continents used to be together is true, if that were the case. And I believe that to be correct as well. Because when we get to the story of Noah, when he's building the ark and the flood comes upon the earth, it seems to suggest that the world began to separate at that point. And to think that the continents are where they are after a course of only 6,000 years is really fascinating to consider as well. Look with me at verse 11. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. Now, if you go to where the animals start to appear in the creation account, you see it in verse 20. Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. Verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. Do you get the idea? That everything was made in kinds. So what does that mean exactly, that things are made in kinds? The fact that God distinguishes kinds agrees with what scientists observe, namely that there are horizontal genetic boundaries beyond which life cannot vary. So for example, Dogs only produce dogs. Cats only produce cats. Apple trees only produce apples. We have never witnessed one kind changing into another kind through what evolution would suggest. We've never seen a dog give birth to a cat. We've never seen an apple tree start to grow mangoes. And therefore, the idea that there are missing links in the evolutionary path is completely false, because we have never observed in real time the idea that there's anything beyond our kinds. So, no, it completely throws out the idea that there is any kind of evolution in that way. Or another popular theory, 
like how a chicken is the evolution of a T-Rex. I mean, just thinking about that is hilarious, but we have never witnessed one kind changing into another kind. There are truly natural limits to biological change, and God established that from the very beginning. And if we believe the Bible is true, this should not surprise us. On that note, there was something I heard often growing up called the chicken or egg dilemma. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, this has been really something that has been a struggle with philosophy and science for a very long time. But the Bible says it very plainly as to which one came first. It says in verse 20, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. Verse 22, God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So the Bible is stating very clearly that he made the chicken. He did not make the egg and just have a bunch of eggs laying all over the ground. He made the chicken first. It's plain as day that he created birds with the ability to reproduce after its kind. Therefore, chickens were created first with the ability to make eggs. Evolution has no solution for this dilemma because it's impossible. Because in their eyes, it's impossible for that to happen in the natural. On that note, another thing that's interesting is if you go to verses 27 and 28, it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So here's the problem that has been proposed for a long time, and evolutionists cannot answer it, because it doesn't seem to be possible. How is it that male and female reproductive organs evolved at the same time? Wouldn't there have been an evolutionary point where, if evolution was true, where a monkey was a monkey, and a man was a man at one point or another, but that a female and a male did not come to be at the same time. So how do we reconcile that? Is there something we're missing here? Well, the problem is that evolution isn't true. So the Bible says very clearly that God made male and female in order to propagate the human race as well as male and female across all the animal species. So there's a reason why these things exist in such a way, because they were designed to be this way by an intelligent designer, and his name is the Lord God. Scientists cannot wrap their head around how, through evolution, reproduction could be explained, because it would not seem possible. Because to them, it's impossible. But yet, we know with God, all things are possible, as well as we know that they're just plain wrong. Now, I did say I wouldn't jump around, but hopefully this is the only time I intend to jump around. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, 
I want you to see something in the first three verses here. Science is expressed in the universe through four main things, four main categories, if you will. Time, space, matter, and energy. And all four of these aspects are present in the creation account. In the beginning, which is the aspect of time, God created the heavens, which is the aspect of space, and the earth, which is the aspect of matter. And then in verse 3, it says that God said, let there be light, which is the aspect of energy. No other creation account agrees with the observable evidence that science explains. And in this case, science and creation go hand in hand, right? And it shows that these two ideas can coexist and complement each other even. I think we're good with chapter 1 at this point, so let's move to chapter 2 of the book of Genesis. Go with me to verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So there's a couple things to consider here. One is, it says that our bodies are made from the dust of the ground. Can that be scientifically proven? Yes, yes it can. In fact, it has already been proven. Scientists have discovered that the human body is comprised of some 28 base and trace elements. And all of them are found in the dirt. So there's that aspect to consider. But additionally, we talked about the law of biogenesis, right? So if we are indeed made from the dust of the ground, how is it that if we are made of these base elements and you take air away from us and you reintroduce it after a period of time, why don't we come back to life? Then that suggests that there is another dimension of life that science cannot explain, that there is perhaps a spiritual aspect to things. Now, if I told you that the laws of thermodynamics are in the Bible, would you believe me? No? Well, okay. Let me show you where they are. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Verse 1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. So the first law of thermodynamics states that the total quantity of energy and matter in the universe is a constant. One form of energy or matter may be converted into another, but the total quantity always remains the same. Therefore, when God created everything and he finished his work, there is nothing new to create. There was no new matter to introduce into the universe. Therefore, science has proven what God had already said thousands of years ago. How fascinating that is. Now, when you look at what we did, the fall of mankind, that shows the second law of thermodynamics, which is entropy. What the law of entropy states is that everything in the universe is running down. 
It's deteriorating. It's decaying. It's constantly becoming less and less orderly. So that's why they call it entropy, disorder. Entropy did not enter into creation until mankind rebelled against God. And therefore, sin is what causes entropy. So that is part of the curse that God put on the universe as a result of our disobedience to him. Historically, most people believed that the universe was unchangeable, but yet modern science verifies that the universe is growing old like a garment, like it says in Hebrews chapter 1. And what's even crazier is that evolutionists will hold to the second law of thermodynamics, but yet it completely contradicts evolution. And so that has been a very hard thing for them to explain over the years. And no wonder, because the two ideas cannot coexist, whereas God's laws do coexist. Genesis chapter 5 contains the genealogy from Adam to Noah. So what it's saying is that God created all mankind from one bloodline. Today, researchers have discovered that we all have descended from one gene pool. And no wonder, because we all descended from Adam. For example, in 1995, there was a study of a section of Y chromosomes from 38 men from various ethnic groups all around the world. And they were all consistent with showing that they had one origin. So naturally, this finding is completely consistent with the biblical teaching that we all came from one man, Adam. And if this is indeed the case, then Genesis chapter 4, verse 17, makes more sense. It says that Cain, being the first person born from man, had relations with his wife, and she conceived. Hang on a minute. If he was the first man to be born on this planet, and we all descended from one bloodline, where did he get a wife? How do we reconcile that? Well, it may seem a little odd in today's world, but, but it's pretty clear that Cain married his sister. I mean, you'll have skeptics that point out that Cain had no one to marry. Therefore, the Bible's false. But it says plainly that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. And Cain, therefore, married his sister. That sounds creepy in today's world, but it's not so much of a problem back then, because, naturally, that was the only means to do it. But secondly is, there were no genetic impurities in mankind. The genetic code was strong and pure. And over the course of the centuries, our genetic code has changed very much, and we don't maintain the same purity that we had thousands of years ago. So over time, yes, it will become a problem, but at the beginning, when there weren't any other human beings to propagate with, this was not so much of a problem. Turn with me now to the flood account in Genesis chapter 6. Before we see the waters fall from the sky and come from beneath the earth, we see this description here of the perfect dimensions for a stable water vessel from the very beginning of the Bible. 
Beginning in verse 15, God describes exactly how to build this ark. And shipbuilders today still follow the same basic guidelines of how to build a proper ship. They're very well aware that the ideal dimension for ship stability is a length six times that of the width. So keeping that in mind, God told Noah the ideal dimensions for the ark more than 4,500 years ago. And the same concept is still being followed today. Here's something that really blew my mind when I saw it. In chapter 7 of the book of Genesis, go with me to verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. There's a couple things to consider here. For one, it says that the fountains of the great deep burst open. So it's suggesting that deep under the earth, there was a reservoir of water that came out of the earth and flood the surface of the earth. Does that seem like something that is possible? Well, we didn't think so until very recently, in fact. Less than 10 years ago, I think it is. Scientists discovered something called ringwoodite. It is a type of rock that is very absorbent and really is considered a new state of water. And they found this deep under the earth, in the planet's mantle. And you know what else they discovered? In the planet's mantle, there is three times as much water in the mantle of the earth than there is on the surface. Triple the amount of water that is in our oceans and in our seas, right underneath our feet. That's where they came from. So doesn't that make sense? How when the Bible mentions the waters from the deep burst forth, that's where it came from. It came from the mantle of the earth and burst up into the surface. Utterly fascinating when I thought about that. Now, something that has been a debate for a very long time, and there is no definitive statement in the Bible that supports this, but let me tell you what I think. The Bible seems to describe that the world was very different from the way we understand it today in terms of how the ecosystems worked as well as how things grew. And it seems to suggest that it never rained prior to the flood. So how did things get watered? How did things stay alive as long as they did? Well, I am a personal believer in something that's called the canopy theory. And this can be drawn from Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven, or what we would call sky. So what it's saying is that there was water 
above the sky, and there was water below the sky. Water below the sky being what we understand to be water. But there was also a layer of water above the sky in our atmosphere. So what I am saying is the Bible seems to point to a canopy, a layer of water that was encircling the earth. And when the flood happened, God allowed all of that to fall. Now, something else that's very interesting to think about is the fact that rainbows never existed prior to the flood, if we see the biblical account here. So, why not? Well, partly because God created it, yes, but also because if there was indeed water floating above our sky, it would not have produced a rainbow because the conditions for the rainbow were not present at that time. But secondly, it really makes you wonder how these people lived so long. They lived five, six, seven, eight, nine hundred years before they died. But you know what it is that causes us to age and to decay at such a rapid rate these days? Ultraviolet rays. The rays from the sun are what cause us to decay at such a rapid rate. You know what water does? It reflects ultraviolet rays. So if there was indeed a layer of water above the surface, it was bouncing off ultraviolet rays. Therefore, our bodies were decaying at a much slower rate, which would give you a natural explanation as to why people lived so long back then. Not only by God's ordaining of it, but also there seems to be a physical, reasonable, scientific explanation for it. And it's fascinating to consider what the world was like in the pre-Diluvian period, which the period before the flood. Our knowledge of that time period is very limited, and some of it is inferences as well as theories, but I still love to think about the possibilities. But when it comes to the origin of the rainbow and when it comes to the canopy theory, that's where I draw my conclusion. Now here's something else to consider as well. In Genesis chapter 9, prior to the flood, we know that things were different. But after the flood, it said that God set his rainbow in the cloud, beginning in verse 13. And he did that as a sign that he would never again flood the earth with water in judgment. Meteorologists now understand that a rainbow is formed when the sun shines through water droplets, which act as a prism, separating white light into its color spectrum. If you had a canopy of water above, you would not have been able to see that. So that's very interesting. Genesis chapter 7 also anticipates something that we understand today as to the existence of fossils. Now, this one is hotly debated because of carbon dating and the blatant refusal to believe anything that God says. But the Bible seems to describe in chapter 7 how all the fossils got there and how fossil fuels came into being. What do I mean? Well, when plants and animals die, they decompose rapidly. Yet, 
we see today that billions of life forms around the globe have been preserved as fossils. And there are very specific conditions with rapid burial that causes fossilization to take place. Geologists now know that fossils only form if there is rapid deposition of life, buried away from scavengers and bacteria. And this agrees completely with what the Bible has said during the global flood. It happened so quickly, it was such a destructive force, and so there's no wonder all these fossils are where they are. And if you've ever wondered how shellfish and other life like that can be found on Mount Everest, surely there's a reasonable explanation for that. How is it that in the strangest of places we've been able to find fossils of things that should not be there? Well, this is why, because the flood was above the mountains, and sea life was above the mountains at that point. Therefore, things started to die on those before the flood water started to subside. Then look with me at verse 11 of chapter 7. In the same way we talked about the fountains of the great deep bursting open, which came from under the ground, and it says the floodgates of the sky were opened, it also seems to suggest that continental drift started to take place. The study of the ocean floor today indicates that the land masses have been ripped apart. That is a scientific fact. Scripture has stated how they ripped apart during the global flood. When the fountains of the great deep were broken up, this cataclysmic event resulted in the continental plates breaking and shifting over time. So there it is. You don't need to look any further than Genesis to find this stuff. Let's turn over to chapter 11. In chapter 11, we have the rebellion at the Tower of Babel. And it shows here that God scattered the people by confounding the one language into many languages. Evolution teaches that we all evolved from a common ancestor. Yet evolution cannot account for or explain the origin of thousands of diverse languages that exist today. So there's a couple things we have to note here. One is how major language groups were created. God did it here at the Tower of Babel. But this also shows us how the different races came to be as well. How depending on where they were geographically, they over time did go through a form of evolution, what we call microevolution. And that is something that is a scientific fact, that over time, living creatures adapt to their environment. And so we have over centuries of genetic change where people start to look different from each other, depending on where they live and what they eat and what kind of environment they're exposed to. So not only does chapter 11 describe how all the languages came to be, but it also describes how all the races came to be. Depending on where they went, they, over time, started to look different. And their skin color would change. And bear in mind that melanin is what makes skin color what it is. And it's based on how much exposure to the sun 
you're expected to have in a particular geographic area. So it makes perfect sense as to how you would go in the hot, arid, desert places and you'd have darker people. But when you go to the colder, northern places of Earth where you need to be constantly bundled up and out of that light, then you would be lighter skinned. So it makes sense. So can we just understand for everyone that is a hater today that there is only one race, the human race? Because we are all made in God's image. And really, the only difference between some of us is how much melanin is in your skin. And how is that something that should be separating us, you know? So I think it's ridiculous that we've caused divisions amongst ourselves for ridiculous reasons like this. We are all human beings equally, and we need to love each other and embrace that truth. Let me give you a couple more facts today, and then we'll call it a day. If you turn with me to Genesis chapter 17, we have the discussion here with God and Abraham about the concept of circumcision. If you look at verse 12, read it with me, please. And every male among you who is eight days old, remember that age, eight days old, shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. So what he's talking about here is how circumcision on the eighth day is ideal. Is there a scientific purpose for that? Yes. Modern science has discovered that there is a chemical in blood called prothrombin. And this is what helps your blood to clot. And this chemical, prothrombin, peaks in a newborn when? On the eighth day. Therefore, the safest day to circumcise a baby is on the eighth day. How did the Israelites know this? How did Moses know this? How did Abraham know this? Because God said it. And therefore, that is reason enough. The last one I have for you is in Genesis chapter 22. If you look at me at verse 17, let's see what is said here. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. God appears to be comparing the number of stars to the number of grains of sand on the seashore. Now, is he doing this just to illustrate how vast of a promise he's making to Abraham? Or is there something specific that we can infer from it? Here's the amazing thing. There was a scientific study that was done on this very thing. And amazingly, gross estimates of the number of sand grains are indeed comparable to the estimated number of stars in the universe. When you think of just the magnitude of these things, you can't just say it's coincidence, because there is no such thing as coincidence if you understand that there is a God. So the more that I look at this stuff, the more fascinated I become at how 
wonderful God is. And it just brings me back to Romans chapter 1, how it says that God makes himself evident in his creation, and so that we have no excuse for denying his existence. And I believe that because there's so much in the Bible, and we just scratched the surface. I'm currently planning more episodes coming up here soon with more scientific facts throughout the rest of the Bible, outside of Genesis. And there are over a hundred easily. So there's something to definitely consider here. So I hope that this helps you see the Bible differently. That not only is it just a book of laws, it's a book of commands, it's a book of hope and life and love, but it's also a book of science. The entire human experience in one place. And it is wonderful to imagine how much more we're going to see in here. I think with that, this is a good place to stop. I really hope you've enjoyed this study and look forward to future episodes on this from me. But until then, thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.